Amen. Do please sit down. Thank you, Jack, and thank you to Flick and to Jim's life group for um, the refreshments tonight. Thanks so much. Really good. Um, I have one spare folder here. If anybody didn't get one, um, yeah, fantastic. I won't be offended if some of you have your backs to me, so you're welcome just to stay in your, uh, in your group. That's fine if you'd like to do that. Um, I'm really excited about uh, this, this transforming life stuff. It's not really a course. It's more some principles that have come to be really precious to, to me. Um, and I'm going to share a little bit about how I, I kind of came into it, really. Um, some of you have heard bits of this before, but uh, we were invited to go to a church in um, central London about 18 years ago now. Uh, and before that, we had been privileged to plant a church, and like many church plants, it had, it had grown, and... When things grow, uh, everyone likes the pastor and thinks they're doing a wonderful job. Um, and then we were invited on the back of that to go and do another project. And despite the difficulties and challenges of it, actually, by God's grace, we managed to pull something out of the, the, the wreckage. And actually, it, it, that was great. And then, and then we were invited to go to St. Barnabas Church in London. And um, on that sort of sense of... We've got that experience that we had at church planting. We've got that five years of working for the Diocese of Winchester, and uh, that was fantastic. And now off the back of that, they've invited us to come to this church here and marshalling all my wisdom and experience. We set out a plan for how we wanted this church to grow and develop. And two years in... Uh, I was ready to quit. I mean, quite literally, I was ready to quit. I'm at the doctors. Uh, I don't mind telling you now. You can always tell the stories when they're 14 years old. Uh, for the first, I'm in my 40s, and having uh, counselled and helped and tried to pray with many people struggling with difficulties in their lives, I am now also on antidepressants, trying to stay afloat in a church where everything seems to be going wrong. I'm feeling out of my depth. Every prayer I've ever prayed before that seemed to work magic in the heavenly spaces now is not working. All the wisdom I've accumulated that I thought I could bring to bear uh, always worked before. Now it doesn't work. My, um, my lovely personal pastoral style that had always worked on people before now didn't work at all. Nobody was won over by my natural charm and whatever. Um, and I was out of ideas. Um, and like so many of my colleagues, 
had a resignation letter just waiting to be signed. Uh, I up, the date was automatically updated by my word processor every day, and I was just waiting for the day I would sign it, thinking, well, I, I just don't want to do this anymore, God. Um, and a friend of ours put us in touch with uh, a couple who were visiting from, um, from the States as it happened, we met up with them, and they said, you need to get some time off, and you need to come out to the States and spend some time with us. And if you do that, we will then come with a team, and we will come to your church for a month, and we will work with you and your team, and we will help you to sort out what's going on. So we jumped at this, Jan and I. We got a month off. Our bishop gave me a month off. Um, and we went out to uh, uh, Tacoma in uh, Seattle, near Seattle, and they had fixed up teams of people in their church to pray with uh, Jan and I every day. So the first day, still suffering from jet lag, we go to their church, there's a lovely couple there, they've taken time off work, we're going to pray with you, um, and we're going to listen to God, we're going we're to help to see what God is going to do in your life. Um, and so they started to pray, and um, Nothing particularly seemed to happen. They weren't praying for me. They were just asking God all kinds of things. They were saying things like, Lord, show us what's coming against Tim right now. What's coming against him in the heavenly realms? And I didn't really understand what they were talking about, but it didn't matter because they didn't seem to be asking me. They were asking God, and they wrote lots of things down. This went on for about half an hour, and I'm just sitting there, and they're just scribbling on this bit of paper. And I'm thinking a little bit, this isn't ministry how I'm used to it. You know, you normally go forward for ministry, someone lays their hand on you and uh, prays something very encouraging, and you go home. Um, and they were just taking their time. And then they started and said, would you like us to share with you what God has shown us? And I said, well, I would. And um, I expected that they were going to list all the different people that uh, if they were very prophetic, they would have discerned this, the people that were giving me a hard time. They would list the situations and the circumstances that were making life so desperately impossible for us in this situation. But instead, they said, well, the things we're we're getting here is, um, is things like fear and comparison with others and a deep sense of insignificance in your calling. And I began to feel quite angry, maybe a bit jet-lagged, my emotions were all over the place. I thought, I've come 5,000 or however many miles it is, more than that, isn't it? Um, miles for prayer. And you're simply reading out a list, of, a list of my sins or a list of the things that I felt them to be sin. You know, they're, they're not exactly things you want to put your hand up to, are they? Anyone here suffering from a deep sense of insignificance? Uh, you know, just want to own up to that. Um, and, I, and then they said, well, we have a picture, Tim, and it's a picture of you and your little boy, and it's with your dad, and your dad is saying this. And the moment they started to speak, I remembered exactly the scene they were describing. I was you know, a, a kid. This is 35, 40 years ago. They described a conversation, and it was exactly the conversation I remembered. They had pictures and visions that they used to back up these things. They said, well, Tim, we have a picture of you. You're running a race, and you're way out the front. You're winning. But then you turn around to see if anyone else is following you. 
because you don't feel comfortable being out there on your own. But God called you to be there. And so you turn around and you stop running and then everybody else catches up and tramples over you. And you lose. And as they're sharing these things, you, you may have experienced this. It's like bolts of revelation. Just thinking, that's exactly what it feels like. And they said, all your life, you've compared yourself to other pastors and leaders. And they start naming a few. This is, this is I mean, they're miles, thousands of miles away. And you think, how do you know this? How could you possibly know this? And this is pro- prophecy at a level that I've never experienced before. And they shared all this stuff with me. And at the end of it, I'm feeling just kind of a bit wrecked, to be honest. Because they had just spoken about my life. And where I was expecting them to list all the things that I was having to deal with, that were injustices that I was having to face, instead, it's just been this whole thing about about me and about the stuff that's going on in my life. And they said, Tim, this is what's coming against you. It's not the people. It's not the church. It's not the city of London. It's what's coming against you are schemes of the enemy that he has sown into your life to stop you from being the person God called you to be. And it's finally caught up with you in this particular situation. And he said, would you like us to pray? I said, yeah, I really would. He said, let's stand. So we stood, and I waited for them to pray. They didn't pray anything. And you know how you wait? I don't know if you've been in a prayer meeting and no one's really praying, and you're not sure what's going on, so you're kind of praying, but you open your fingers a bit to see what's going on. Maybe everyone else has stopped praying and I'm the only one praying. So I just went like that and I saw them looking at me and I realized that they weren't praying. And I, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I, I thought you were going to pray for me. You know, I have come a rather long way. I thought the least you could do would be to say a little <laughs> prayer for me. And they said, well, well, we could pray for you, but what would be the point and I said, well, well, every point, really, because I'm kind of dying here and uh, could really use some prayer support. And they said, well, Tim, the thing is that, that these things like fear and insignificance, this comparison, they're strongholds, and they're your strongholds. They're not ours, they're yours. They said, so, so you, need to, you need to pray. So I said, okay. Um, mumbled a few sentences of prayer and then opened my eyes again and said, I'm really sorry, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. How do I pray about this stuff? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? And she said, well, you, you're supposed to use your authority. You, 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 you pray, you exercise your authority against these things that are coming against you. And, okay, so we close our eyes for the third time and we start to pray and after about 10 seconds, I open my eyes and I say, I'm so sorry, I, I really don't know what you mean. I have no idea what you're talking about. And then she said this, the words burned indelibly into my heart. She said, you're, you're a pastor, right? I said, yeah. She said, a vicar in the Church of England. I said, yeah. She said, right, you're a pastor. Yeah, she said, and you don't know how to use your spiritual authority. Is that right? And is that what you're saying? I thought it was a little harsh. But uh, actually, it was what she was saying. It was the truth. I said, no, I don't think I do. She said, well, to be honest, she said, that's a miracle. She said, I'm amazed you've got this far. I said, how can you be a pastor if you don't know how to use your spiritual authority? These were words I'd heard of. I'd read them in books. I knew that we exercise spiritual authority. I mean, we do, yeah, spiritual authority. 
but I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know how to use it. It was like this Bible tool, use your spiritual authority, but I didn't know how to wield it or how to use it. I didn't know how to, I didn't know what it was. And she said, would you, would, would you like to pray line by line after me? And that's, that's what we did. A 40-something pastor praying line by line after a Seattle housewife who's given up two hours of her time to help me. And I didn't really feel that I understood a thing about what had happened. A few days later, they uh, had another prayer session for us. And um, it was a Sunday after the service, and they'd fi- fixed up uh, another team to pray. And um, they, again, a different team, came up with exactly the same things that they said. These things are coming against you, Tim. They're not you, but they're things that are coming against you. And they use this same language about, you know, the enemy has sown these into your heart, and you need to use your spiritual authority and I have to confess, I'm still feeling, I just don't know really what, what this is about or how you do this. I was a bit afraid that, you know, I, we'd been there. Their service was, Sunday service was quite kind of okay. It wasn't kind of wacky in the way that I was a bit dreading, that it was going to be a bit kind of full on and I was going to feel uncomfortable. Actually, it was very normal. But they were using this language in a way that you should know about this. You're a pastor. You should know how to do this. And I didn't. So I started to pray the way they had taught me on that very first day. And I'd start to pray a few things like, Lord, you know, I'm sorry, I've sometimes given into fear and I've not always stood against that fear or recognized that, that the fear was within me. I blamed everybody else for it, but actually it was, it's fear that's inside me. And, um, and as I prayed, and this doesn't happen very often, I had a vision and I was standing at the front door of my vicarage, and I would open the door to somebody who had knocked on the door, except there was no one there, except that coming past me out of the house was man after man in that archetypal kind of burglar outfit, you know, with a big swag bag on their back and a, uh, 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 sort of bad, bad on hoodie right down. And they were just walking out, and I wasn't doing anything. They were just going out, and they were stealing my stuff. And two or three people went out the door with this bag on. I was like seeing this, like an action that was playing in my mind. And I'm still praying um, in the way they had showed me to. And as I saw this picture, I knew exactly what it meant. And I started to let that inform my praying. And as I did, I felt something genuinely rise up within me. And I started to pray, in the name of Jesus, I'm so fed up with this fear. And I'm so fed up comparing myself to every other pastor and always failing. I'm so fed up living like this. I'm so angry that the enemy has tried to rob me of the call that God has placed on my life. He's robbed me of my joy. And I'm so angry that you've got away with this. And I didn't even notice because you blinded me. I thought it was everybody else, but it was stuff that was going on within me. And I'm so angry that I didn't know how to deal with it. And I've had enough of this. And in the name of Jesus, I'm speaking to these guys walking out my house with all this stuff, my stuff. And I'm saying, in the name of Jesus, stop. And this must have gone on for quite a long time. And I looked up and everyone in the room is looking at me. Because I hadn't realized I'm, I'm shouting. And she says to me, 
That's how you use your authority. And that started us on a journey, a journey of things that I think really I should have known. I did know in part, but I hadn't joined up the dots. And much of what we're going to share with you, you'll think, well, I know that. But it's trying to join the dots up in a way that makes sense to help us to understand how um, we how we can be free. Because I've discovered that we sing a lot about freedom. Jesus has set us free. I mean, it's the biggest theme in the Bible, isn't it? Through the waters of the Red Sea, God led his people out of Egypt into freedom in the promised land. Isaiah says it is for, uh, that when the, uh, God's anointed, the Christ comes, he'll bring freedom to the captives. I mean, freedom is the great theme of the Bible, Right? But how many of us really know what that means? I mean, what have you been freed from? Um, And what are you being freed for? And does freedom just happen the minute I become a Christian? Um, I mean, Christ has already done it. So why does living the Christian life so often feel like driving with the handbrake on? Have you ever done that? You know, driving away, and there's something wrong with the car. It's a bit sluggish, it's not working, and you discover that actually you've got the handbrake on. And sometimes the Christian life feels like that. I'm doing all the right things, I'm praying in faith for the things, but I'm just not really seeing God do as much as I wish he would. I don't see my own life changing as much as I wish it would. Freedom is at the heart of the gospel message. Jesus takes the message of the Old Testament and applies it not only to a nation, to a political arena, he applies it to each individual. Freedom is not just liberation from political or social oppression. It's a personal journey out of slavery to the powers of sin and fear and guilt and pride and condemnation and into the glorious freedom of the children of God the real captives, the real things that keep us trapped are not external circumstances. It's the things that are going on inside me, the things that, um, the powers that are at work in me, and we'll look at these and see what the Bible has to say about them. The Apostle Paul says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Um, And we're going to look at the next six weeks over what kind of things keep me bound, imprisoned, and how do I get set free? And what am I set free for? Because there's sort of three parts, aren't there, to being set free. If If you need to be set free, it implies that you're in some kind of prison or some kind of bondage. And then someone is, something's going to set you free, and now you're free to do what you couldn't otherwise do when you were in prison. It also implies that there is a purpose that God had planned for you, but which is no longer fully available to you because of the prisons that are holding you back. God has an original plan and purpose for every single person. But there are forces at work. 
And when Paul, in the book of Ephesians, talks about spiritual warfare, and he talks about the weapons of our warfare, what if it's true? What if it's true? What if the Bible's true? What if our battle is not against flesh and blood? What if it's true? When Paul says that our battle is against spiritual forces and powers, what if it's true? Suppose that's the truth of it. And yet we carry on through our Christian lives as if pure academic knowledge about the Bible or about, about Jesus or about God or um, just trying harder to be a nicer, kinder, loving person, we think that that's how we're going to become more mature Christians. But Paul, the apostle, says to the church in Ephesus, you're battling against, you're not battling against flesh and blood, against your own, you're battling against powers and forces that are at work and are opposing the grand design that God had for you. And I've shared already at Christ Church the, the great story of Joshua, who facing those um, big obstacles as he goes into the promised land, he's facing uh, a river Jordan in flood, he's facing strongholds of the Jericho uh, that are going to oppose the oncoming army of um, God's people. And there are also giants in the land um, which are going to cause them to fear and to question whether they've got the power to, to win. And God comes to Joshua and says, Joshua, be bold and very courageous. Be bold and very courageous. Three times he says it. Because what's really at stake here is not Jericho, and it's not the giants, and it's not the River Jordan that's in flood. God has an amazing plan for dealing with those things. Read the story. Fantastic. Miracles. I mean, it's amazing. There is a real danger that they won't enter the promised land. That is quite possible, but it won't be the giants, and it won't be Jericho, and it won't be the River Jordan. What if Joshua caves in to fear? What if he gives in to weakness instead of boldness? Right now, that's the battle. Right now, in that moment when God said, that's the issue that Josh is facing with. Because I don't think he is feeling confident, and I don't think he's feeling like a warrior. I don't think he's feeling like Moses' great successor. I think he's actually thinking, I don't know if we can do this. And God says to him three times, Joshua, you've got to be bold and courageous. Right now, it's in the balance. See, the things that are coming against Joshua aren't the external things. It's the things he's wrestling with inside. Will he stand up and be and fulfill the plan and purpose God had for him? Or will he lose out against those battles of fear and intimidation in the face of disaster and apparent, uh, you know, apparent strength of the enemy? That's what's going on for Joshua in that moment. And I think that's a picture for us. Jesus has set us free. He's laid a promised land in front of us. And the great adventure of the kingdom is learning how to, to, to get out of the prison in order to walk into it. Because it's there for us. But if we don't know how to use our authority, if we don't know how to identify the kinds of things that hold us back, if we can't be honest about the struggles that we face, if we don't know how 
to pray to the pulling down of those strongholds and the, the prisons that keep us enslaved, then we will make some progress, but it won't ever be as much as it could have been. And sometimes we'll, we'll feel, oh, I pray so much for the sick. We talk so much about God's wanting to overcome in different areas, but I, I don't know if I've ever really seen that as much as I think I should. And lots of Christians, spirit-filled Christians, live with quite a high level of disappointment because much is promised, often by leaders from the front. But deep down, we think, well, I don't know if I'm seeing as much of that in my own life as I think I should be. And if we could be honest about that and share together and become comfortable with understanding what some of these things are, that these spiritual powers that are going on if we could understand how they're at work in our lives, we could begin to, to deal with them. We could begin to walk out of them. When I began to accept that it wasn't everybody else's fault in London, it wasn't exactly my fault either, but that I was actually dealing with a spiritual battle, I began to learn how to be more resilient. I learned how, for the first time, which is embarrassing, really, as a Christian over 20 years, to learn how, what the psalmist says to, um, it is God, Psalm 36, it's God who trains my hands for battle. We get, we get used to wielding the weapons of our warfare. I don't think I lifted the sword of the Spirit in years. I didn't know how to do it in practice. I mean, sometimes I'd be in prayer meetings and people would say, we come against you in the name of Jesus with the sword of the Spirit, but it's just like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? Uh, what does it what's, we come against this with the sword of the Spirit, imagining that God's going to cut someone's head off or something. Well, there were people in my church I wished he would cut their heads off, but that wasn't going to happen, was it? Hmm. Or was it? No, it wasn't. <laughs> Genuinely wasn't. And so it led us on a journey, and it wasn't a quick fix, but it got us through, and we changed. We changed. I changed. I mean, I can't tell you the, the, just the difference it made in our lives as we began to apply these things. What we're sharing with you isn't a, isn't a quick fix. It isn't a quick prayer, and now we're on our way. Freedom at last, and now we can move on to something else. Freedom's a lifelong pursuit of that promise that Jesus is leading us into freedom, out of slavery to things. So that's, the kind of, that's, that's my kind of introduction. And you need to know that God has a purpose and a plan for every one of us. Uh, we discover it in general terms. Um, we know from the scriptures that God doesn't wish people to live in fear. 1 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation. God doesn't want us to live feeling condemned about past sins and failures. We know this. It says so in the Bible. We have the scriptures. We know what God's will is in a general way. We know that we are dearly loved we know that we're to be victorious in and over the affairs of life that uh, happen to us. We know this. But there's also a specific uh, plan and purpose that God has for your life. Particular skills and gifts that God has given to you and not necessarily to others. There are particular challenges that God has given you that he hasn't given me. The scriptures say... Um, uh, find out what the will of the Lord is, Ephesians 5, 17. 
He says, um, to Paul says to Timothy, uh, you have received particular gifts through the laying on of hands. Fan them into flame, Timothy, says the Apostle Paul. There are particular callings on your life. And we discover them as we go through life. We discover them as God speaks to us through the Scriptures, as we look at the passions in our hearts, and we begin to get a bit of a picture of the kind of person that God has called me to be. Some of us discover in the course of our Christian journey that we're more pastors than we are evangelists. Others discover that we're more prophetic than we are um, evangelistic. Others of us discover that we're more passionate about evangelism than we are about pastoral care. We begin to discover the kind of person I am. I begin to discover certain spiritual gifts that God has given me that he doesn't seem to have given others in the same measure. And then I see particular context that God has called me to serve in that he hasn't called other people to serve in. And bit by bit, I'm accumulating that unique design and plan and purpose that God has for my life. I don't discover it necessarily all in one uh, thing, but um, there are key markers on the way. Paul learned lots in his lifetime, and he documents it through the scriptures, but we know on the uh, road to Damascus, he heard a voice, a voice, and he knew that God was sending him to the Gentiles. He knew that that was a particular call that God had given him that he hadn't given other people. There's an original design that God has for you. It's wonderful. It's full of promise and um, you'll love it. And on this course, we're going to have some time where we're going to reflect on our original design. What has God called me to be and made me to be? So if God has a plan and a purpose for my life, then why aren't I just instantly uh, free to do it? Because there is a battle on As soon as God has a plan and a purpose, we see the pattern in Scripture over and over. It's opposed by the enemy. No matter, as soon as God says, I've called you to know my love, immediately we discover that I'm not sure whether he loves me. I'd like to believe that he loves me. I think he loves me. No, I I know he loves me, so long as I do the right things. I know he loves me so long as I perform in a certain way. The Apostle Paul said, I pray to the church in Ephesus that you will have power to grasp the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of the love of God, and that you may know this love that passes understanding. And you think, wonderful, that love of God in four dimensions, the height, the width, the breadth, and the depth of the love of God. But look at the first bit. Paul says, I pray that you will have power to grasp it. Why do you need power? to grasp the love of God? Why would you need power to know that God loves you? Because there are forces. Forces of the enemy, spiritual powers that are unloving you, speaking to you, calling into question whether God really loves you. And Paul says it's not going to be good enough to try harder Look, he really loves you, okay? He really loves you. Say after me, he loves me. He loves me. Got it? Right. Stop whinging. We know that doesn't work. The things that stop me from fully grasping God's love, they're spiritual forces. Have you tried to convince somebody that God loves them when they just 
And they go away feeling a bit happier, but they come back the next week and, I'm not really sure God loves me. You're dealing with a spiritual force. And despite the fact that we've probably heard many sermons on Ephesians 6 and putting on the armor of God and taking our stand against the schemes of the evil one, we're all rather surprised when we suddenly discover that it's true. There really is an enemy and there really are forces in the spiritual places that are opposing the plan and purpose of God for you specifically and personally. And this can be a bit of a shock to us because we don't want to get all super spiritual and think, oh, everything's spiritualized and every little problem I have in life there's some deep kind of, uh, the devil's literally right by my side. And I don't want us to think like that. But I do want us to take seriously the Scriptures. Why is so much of the Old Testament full of fighting? Have you noticed that? I mean, to open almost any page in the history of God's people, and they're always going to war against somebody, aren't they? There are endless wars. They're always going to war against somebody. Why, why is that? Because that's what life's like, isn't it? It's a battle. If you've got young kids, you'll know it's a battle. It's always a battle. Life's a battle. It's a battle to get kids out of bed. It's a battle to get them to the homework. It's a battle to get them to eat their tea. It's a battle to get through the traffic in Tunbridge Wells. It's a battle. The whole of life's so often a battle because it is. Because in a fallen world where God's will and purpose are not always done, we have to learn how to fight. And I'm ashamed to say I didn't know. I was a pastor for 15 years, and I didn't really know how to fight. Not effectively. I had a little book in my bookshelf by Michael Green called Spiritual Warfare. Maybe some of you have got it. Um, I never read it. I just kind of thought, yeah, spiritual warfare. I know it's there. It's on the shelf. When I need it, it'll be there. I didn't realize that I needed it all the time. And we have to understand that um, these principalities and forces of evil in the heavenly realms that the Bible talks about, we have to understand that that's why we don't make as much progress as we would like in the Christian life just by reading the Bible, just by studying it, because we don't understand that these spiritual forces aren't, aren't going to go away just because we try to overcome them. Um, the, 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 the spiritual realm is all around us. Um, some people say, oh, that's, isn't that a bit sort of, you know, weird and way out? Well, of course it's not. There's a spiritual realm. The scriptures talk about it all the time. Um, you can't see it, but it's all around you. You think that's weird? Well, it's not really. It's not weird at all. There's lots of things that are around you, but you can't see them. Uh, your eyes are a fantastic piece of uh, biology, um, and God has given us them. And you can see uh, with your eyes a certain color range, can't you? Red, green, yellow, blue. Your eyes are tuned to see those colors of the spectrum. And that's what I can see, so that's all there is, right? Wrong. Off one end, we have gamma rays. We have x-rays. We can't see them, but we know they're there. Off the other end, you have infrared light. You have ultraviolet light. You can't see it, but you know it's there. You get sunburned when you lie out in the sun. The effect of ray, you can't see them, but they're there. 
There's a spiritual realm all around us, but our, our, our eyes, our human we don't see that. We need the eyes of the Spirit to see into the realm of the Spirit, which is why the Spirit of God, when he comes to us, is, is, is very often the seeing eyes of God is the Spirit. The Spirit searches out things, because the Spirit is the Spirit of God that sees. So there are, there are a, there's a spiritual realm uh, all around us, um, and I've put some examples in the scriptures there of, um, of examples of the, 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 the spiritual realm that's going on. The example of Job. Job's world collapses, if you've read the story. Uh, Job 1, I mean, you can't imagine a, a worse day at the office than Job's uh, uh, experience here. But then we discover that, the, that the, the agent behind Job's calamities is Satan. It's Satan who's having this conversation with God. And what Job experiences as as worldly calamities, we discover there's actually a war going on in this sort of heavenly realm that's being played out in his life. Uh, We have the example of Elisha. Elisha's servant panics at the size of the Aramean army coming against them. Um, And Elisha prays that God will open the eyes of his servant that he might see And he sees into the spiritual, the heavenly realm, which is all around us. And he sees what's really going on. He sees that there are angels on horseback. He sees that there is an invisible to the human eye, the whole army of God that is riding with them, which is why they are going to be successful. And then we have examples in the New Testament. Judas betrays Jesus in Luke 22. But we know, don't we, that the source of that betrayal was Satan himself. Jesus says um, that uh, Satan has entered your heart and prompted you to do this wicked thing. Jesus said of Peter, Satan has, has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that you might be restored. Jesus understood the spiritual battle that was going on around them. And then Ephesians 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Um, The things that hold us back from God's purpose aren't all those things that are going wrong in my life. Well, it's not only those. The things that are really holding me back is what that makes me act like. What really holds me back is fear, doubt, a failure to trust the good purpose of God, panicking and giving in to things which God never wanted me to. These are the forces that are at work. And we need to understand that these, um, these things are spiritual in nature. Um, sin is not just a bunch of stuff you do wrong. The New Testament calls it the power of sin. We sing it all the time. Who breaks the power of... Sin isn't just doing something naughty. Sin is a power. It's a force. Addiction is not always just a chemical or an emotional um, thing that's going wrong in a person. There's a spiritual element to it. Rejection and pride are spiritual forces. You can control the outward behavior, 
but it's very difficult, isn't it, to, to, to deal with that, when that kind of, what about jealousy? If you've ever really been jealous of something or somebody, you know, it's like it kind of grips you. Where did that come from? I don't even want it, but I can't help it. I'm trying not to be jealous. I'm trying so hard, but it's just there. It's a force. So many of the things that people in our world deal with are spiritual forces. Love is a spiritual commodity before it's an emotion. We fall in love with people we don't even want to fall in love with because it's a spiritual thing. We don't necessarily think about who we're going to fall in love with. I think I'm going to fall in love with this person. We just do. It bypasses our minds, and sometimes it bypasses our emotions. You don't always feel desperately in love with the person you're in love with, but you know that you love them. It's more than just a thought. It's more than just an emotion. It's more than a feeling. It's a, it's a power. Love is a wonderful spiritual power that God has given. Rejection and pride are spiritual powers as well. We don't overcome them by trying harder. Impatience, insignificance, fear, these are spiritual powers. And if we're really going to do more than just manage the outward behaviors that go with it, we're going to need to learn how to use the weapons of our warfare to going against these things in our lives and in the lives of our friends that we're praying for. Because you don't deal with the power of sin by working harder at being nicer. Gosh, many of us have tried, haven't we, for years and years, because we never really understood grace and how it all works. I hope we will by the time we finish this course. And then the, 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 uh, the next thing we find is that uh, the Western mindset, particularly in, in the Western part of our world, is actually deeply resistant to the idea of a spiritual realm. Um, we find that actually we try to deal with things in our natural ability because we live in a very rational, materialistic world where we can overcome problems, we can deal with issues, and everything is manageable and controllable if we just apply our science enough. And so we become very alienated from the idea that there are spiritual forces and powers at work, and maybe some of us even tonight are sort of thinking, oh, really, how wacky is this church going to get? I don't want us to get wacky, but I want us to get biblical. And I think that this is a reality, and I see it over and over. How I have wished that I could convince the young girl that I'm praying with uh, in London uh, that she is actually beautiful. How can I convince her that she is actually sick stone and dangerously ill when she thinks she is ugly and fat? Why can't I convince her? Why can't she just look in the mirror and see that? It's a stronghold. It's a spiritual battle. It's, it's going on. You're not going to convince her. All the, all, all, all the kind of the praying, you're kind of trying to help her to see the truth of it. It's not going to work because uh, some of you have tried. You'll know how difficult it is. These things are powers that must be broken. And so we've become quite dismissive very often that there's a spiritual realm and that things that are going on in our lives are empowered by the enemy. And we shouldn't think of these things as being that we're, we're demonized or that there's, there's the, the, the devil's at work in my life. Um, we would see that the, the, the enemy, our enemy, he energizes things like pride and bitterness and rejection and hatred. He energizes those things. 
And yes, those things are at work to try and hold us back in our own lives. We don't need to, to think about it. Oh, that means that I, I need to be delivered of demons. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that at all. It means that we just recognize that we're in a battle and those things are going on in my life. Energized by the enemy, but whom Christ has given us power to overcome if only we learn how to use them and learn how to exercise that power. Um, and finally, before we just go into some groups to just discuss this a bit, bit further, um, the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19 is a wonderful summary, and I love this because it sums up what I've been trying to say. You remember Jesus uh, is walking um, uh, down the road, and Zacchaeus is a little man, can't see, climbs up into a sycamore tree, um, and tries to see uh, Jesus, and Jesus spots him up the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Uh, and Jesus goes with Zacchaeus, and we don't really know what happens while they're together, but what we do know is that when, when it's all over, when they finish tea, as the Sunday school song has us believe, they finish their tea, and Zacchaeus says, here and now I give uh, half my wealth to the poor. Anything I've stolen, I'll, re I'll repay it back with interest. Uh, and Jesus says, surely repentance has come to this house today. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus. And then we get one of these lovely summary statements. If you've got your own Bible, underline it. If it's a church Bible, don't. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man came to seek what was and to save that which was lost. And uh, the word to save is the Greek word sozo. It means deliverance, restoration, healing, wholeness. What was lost, the word is apolumai. It means destroyed, stolen, taken away. Jesus says, God intended good things for you. A wonderful plan and a purpose. But your life has been plundered by the enemy. And Jesus says, but I've come to seek out all that has been lost and destroyed. And I've come to give it back to you. I've come to give it back. And I, I haven't got a pen here, so I can't write it out for you. But, and I think I've shared this with some of you before. But there are four great movements to the symphony that God is has, uh, has penned and composed of human, the human history. It starts with movement one, creation. God creates everything and it was good. The second movement is the fall, rebellion against God, a rejecting of God's ways. That's the second big movement. And the Old Testament tracks the, the, the pathology of humanity in rebellion against God. And then the third big movement is redemption. Jesus comes to save us from our sins and from the power of the enemy. And that's where many churches stop. We're grateful for the forgiveness of Jesus. And we think we're living a forgiven life. Our sins are forgiven. I do things that are wrong, but I come back to church and I'm forgiven. But Jesus didn't call us to a forgiven life. He called us to an abundant life. 
not to live in a perpetual cycle of sin and forgiveness and sin and forgiveness, just getting through life, sinning and then being forgiven and sinning and being forgiven. The fourth great movement of the Scriptures is restoration. The restoration of all things, the repatriation of what God originally intended before the fall. And so many Christians settle for redemption. And what God has planned for us is restoration. The original plan and purpose he intended. He's about making that a reality in your life and in mine. And if we're going to walk into it, we're going to have to get to grips with this spiritual battle that is going on. We're going to have to learn how to identify those things that are holding me back. And I'm going to have to learn how to use the tools that God has given me to break down those walls that keep me imprisoned so that I can walk into the promised land of freedom that God has prepared ready for me. And we can do it together. And we can help one another to walk into it. And I hope that we can begin that journey in these next few weeks. It'll be challenging, but it'll be fun. And we can have a laugh along the way because people are, we are funny the way we deal with things and, you know, you can laugh at me all you like. Don't mind. That's one stronghold I've got over reasonably. This is the purpose of Jesus' ministry today. Luke 19.1. That's why it's worth underlining. What's Jesus doing today? What's he doing in your life? He's come to seek and to save what was lost. He's come to give it back. Everything that's been stolen everything that the enemies try to trip you up with, those things that have happened in your life that caused you to doubt the love of God, that caused you to question your ability or your status before him, that caused you to wonder whether you'd ever be free of fear. Jesus, I've come to seek those things out and to give them back to you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that this is the journey of discipleship that we're on. And I want to thank you for my friends and uh, here now in Tunbridge Wells, and I'm excited about doing this and making this journey that I'm still making in my life, and I'm grateful for um, our new friends that are going to join us on this journey as well. A journey out of the bondage of fear and insignificance and comparison, self-doubt, rejection, bitterness, pride, all of that stuff. God, we're so tired of it. And we want to be free of it. And we want to walk into the plan and purpose that you have for our lives. Thank you that that is everything you're working to do in our lives. So we're confident that you're going to go with us and show us the way. And we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well done, that's a rather long opening introduction, but I had to get through that to set the scene for the coming weeks. That may have raised more questions than it's answered. Don't worry, we have five more weeks. I think you'll find it comes, uh, it comes clearer if you're at all thinking, well, how am I going to get through this? It comes clear. Um, we're going to take some time. There's some questions that uh, the table hosts um, are just going to lead you through in this next uh, half an hour or so, and then we have a very quick time to pray right at the end before we're done.